Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our IWSCC podcast, where we talk about all kinds of things, supplier diversity, accessibility, and inclusion related. Um, our show today is produced by Pod Supply, as usual. And if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, you will see that there's ASL, ASL interpretation, uh, and that's brought to you by our supplier, Maple Communications, but also is uh, part of the sponsorship from RBC, uh, who has sponsored all of our ASL communications for 2023. So RBC is our 2023 ASL uh, IWSCC leader. So we're really grateful for that. And what I'm more grateful for is to be able to uh, talk to my friend Jade Pichette today. Um, I'm, I just, uh, Jade and I have known each other I think about eight or nine years, we've sort of intersected here and there and uh, done a little bit of work together. I always feel like there's so much more that that we could be doing together, Jade, but you know, there's only so many hours in a day, but thank you so much for being here. If you can like, just take a, a couple minutes and introduce yourself and tell us all about what you do. Yeah, thank you for that, Deidre. It's so lovely to be here with you. Um, so I'm Jade Pichette. I use the pronouns they and them in English, elle en français. Um, and uh, I'm a inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility educator um, and uh, specialist uh, currently working at Private Work Canada as the director of programs. So in my work here at Private Work Canada, uh, we are a member services nonprofit. So we work with over 250 different large employers across the country around gender expression, gender identity, and sexual orientation inclusion. And I've been here since 2018. And, and in that time, certainly seen a lot of change and growth. Um, we work with more people now um, around, around gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation inclusion, um, and have gotten the ability to travel the country and, and connect with folks directly, uh, but also put on great programming, both virtual and in person. So it's been an interesting journey. Um, I got into this work, you know, a, a long time ago and have really been trying to create more inclusive spaces over that time. And so that's really what drives me is, is an idea of, of how can I create more inclusive spaces for um, to us LGBTQIA plus communities at the end of the day is who I am. So, so 2018, that must mean you were really early with Pride at Work when you and I first met. Uh, I know that it was early stages of IWSCC, so little, little babies in, in our jobs at that time. Yeah. yeah, I had just started. I think you were one of the first people I think I had met uh, it, like formally within this role um, uh, when I had started at Credit Work um, uh, back in 2018. And uh, we've really seen the growth of both of our organizations over that time and, and a lot of change. That's for sure. And, and in my case, more than just me running it, more than me, just me working at it, which is fantastic. Uh, I love that you include accessibility in your inclusion, diversity and equity uh, acronym. Uh, there's so I, I, I hear ID and E and D, E and I all the time. And, and I always just want to go and accessibility and accessibility because people just don't understand that it's 
it doesn't get covered off by the other three letters. Accessibility is an additional thing that's so important. And so often when we talk to people in that space, they think they've got that covered. And so when I hear you and I, I hear you on the podcast and you, you know, that's one of the things that you talk about often is disability. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later. So, so how long, I know you've been, as you said, with Private Work Canada for 2018, but how long have you been doing this type of work and what really got you started in, in you know, helping people in this space? So I wound up in this space more by chance than than by purpose. Um, I, I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to support people. And um, I really just wound up facing a lot of barriers as a trans person out in the early 2000s, um, as People might imagine there were not, uh, there was no trans tipping point that we had reached. There was, there was none of that, um, and so I had, with the help of some other folks, created an organization called Trans Youth Ottawa, um, and we had started initially as a um, more of just a social group, a place for other trans people to connect. Um, but very quickly, we started to get asked to do presentations and um, engage with the community as a whole, because at the time, there was very few people doing trans education. There were a few people here in Toronto, um, but in Ottawa at the time, there wasn't really um, anybody who was trans who was doing that type of education. So there was a little bit um, by uh, um, uh, a few specific people, but but not as a whole in terms of four organizations. And so we just started getting asked to do those types of presentations and I would go and, and do them sometimes uh, with a colleague, but often by myself. Um, and that's how I got into the work and, and um, I didn't expect it to become my career by any means. Um, I went into social work to get my uh, BSW, um, my Bachelor of Social Work, and then um, after that, uh, tried to find work in the field. And trying to find work in the field back then as a trans person was still very difficult, even in social work and in social services. Um, and so the Queer Community Center ended up hiring me as the Education Programs Coordinator. And so that was kind of my first um, real foray into uh, uh, employment in this area, um, uh, still in the early 2000s. And so um, that uh, led to me going on to getting another degree and eventually wound up here because the system has not changed. Um, I think it's very different now for trans people in social work, but um, it certainly wasn't when I was looking for work previously. And so I, I sometimes say I stumbled into this work. Um, it wasn't a, I ran in charging. It's, it's, I stumbled into it and, and kind of now I'm here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you, we were talking about this yesterday. I went to an international women's day event, uh, at RBC. I was lucky enough to be invited and got to, um, listen to, uh, Arlene Dickinson speak, which was really very cool. And, um, she was talking about the imposter syndrome and, you know, mm. it took her up until just like in her mid to late forties to stop feeling like the imposter. And I wondered when you were in your early stages, when people were asking you to speak, were you kind of like, oh, okay, I don't know if I have, you know, value in what I'm saying, but I'll give it a try. Did you experience any of that? Or did you know from the beginning that you had important stuff to say and, and how to say it? 
I mean, at that time, I wasn't really experiencing imposter syndrome because it was um, very much, uh, you know, small presentations and, and small amounts of payment and all those types of things. And I knew my own lived experience that I could bring to the table. And I also um, had previously, even in high school, been the person who was running and mm-hmm. created the the uh, GSA, the Gender and Sexuality Alliance, um, which was very early for Canada, because um, the first one in Canada was only in 2001, and I formed mine in 2003. Um, oh, wow. And uh, so I had already been in front of a group explaining queer and trans uh, things to just yes. other students. And so I had gotten my experience there. But it's later in my career that I started experiencing imposter syndrome and, and really kind of, um, uh, I think I, I go through it more today than I did when I started doing some of this. Um, and it's not to say that I embrace it or I see that it's true. I know that it's not true, um, but I think it's something that uh, if you are from an equity deserving group and you are uh, experiencing discrimination within your life. And then you don't see yourself reflected in the type of roles that you wind up in, then it's understandable to experience some of that imposter syndrome and to move through it. And, um, to, you know, I, I I still work on it these days. Mm -hmm. Um, even if I didn't have it back then. (laughs) So, I, I interviewed her. I hate the word interview, but um, uh, Colin was on our podcast. We were so happy to have him last fall, mm-hmm. I think. And he was telling me about a webinar that you had put together on the intersectionality of queer trans identities with accessibility and a focus on neurodiversity. And at that time, he thought it was your absolute best webinar, best received, you know, best put together. He couldn't say enough about what a great job you had done. And so I thought, I have to get a hold of Jade and find out all about this. And so he here we are. This is how I've done it. <laughs> but I would love to learn, uh, you know, what what even led you to that kind of thought process? Like what led you to explore uh, this kind of thing, this kind of work, accessibility with, uh, uh, with the queer and trans experience? Well, it's easy to fall into something when you experience it every day. Um, so as, as a disabled person who's proudly disabled, proudly autistic as well, um, I uh, go through the world in a way that I experience barriers and I, you know, I've obviously always been autistic, but I wasn't always disabled in some of the ways that I'm currently disabled. Um, and so I definitely didn't think about accessibility as much, um, at that time, uh, when, you know, I was able to get through the world without some of those, um, uh, chronic, uh, and episodic disabilities that I live with. Um, and so for me, it was just a reflection of my life, the people around me, because a lot of the people that I'm close to are queer and trans folks with disabilities, um, uh, or disabled queer and trans folks, as I prefer to say, actually. Um, and so that is my life. That is my circle. That is my world. Um, and I can't think of things without it. Like, I think quite often we talk about equity deserving groups, 
um, but we don't look at the additional barriers that um, specifically disabled folks within those equity deserving groups um, are experiencing. And so I think that connection for disabled to SLGBTQIA plus folks, you know, are you going to have an ASL translator who actually knows queer ASL terminology? Are you going to have a captioner who's going to be able to take care of captioning in an, in a way that's inclusive to our communities? Um, you know, even trying to find these providers who are inclusive is is difficult. And then there's all kinds of other pieces about how so much of queer and trans life is centered in spaces that are usually not accessible also. So some of the most accessible events I've been to are queer and trans events, certainly, but most queer and trans events are not accessible. So (laughs) it's, it's one of those pieces that I think when you're at the intersection, it's hard to not experience and think about these things. Um, And I hope that I'm able to, educate and provide a space for those who don't experience those, um, those, those pieces and those intersections so that they're able to hear our experiences in a lived way. Because I don't think that, I think quite often it's very difficult to be able to see the privilege that you have. Um, and that's especially true when it comes to accessibility where literally there are barriers sometimes physical barriers um, and uh, non-physical barriers as well that we experience as disabled people. So, I mean, I have a million questions and so many of them relate to some of your podcasts that I've heard. I'm curious to know, well, can you give our audience maybe an idea of what sorts of things make a space uh, accessible when it comes to events? So for for folks that are maybe not queer and trans, and then perhaps how it difference, you know, differentiates or maybe things, you know, um, graduate into a, a higher layer of accessibility based on on who's actually at the events. Can you share a little bit of that with us? I, I definitely can. I'm bringing up a couple notes just to help me <laughs> um, as, as I go through. Um, but uh, as, as I mentioned, there's the, the kind of some of the, the, the barriers that we see with, with um, it, many ASL interpreters and um, actually having the queer and trans knowledge. Um, of terminology within our communities. Um, there's the the captioning issue. I don't know how many captioners I've seen who misgender trans presenters mm. um, all the time uh, based on the tone of their voice. Um, but it can go even beyond that in terms of, you know, when we think of neurodiverse folks, um, even just kind of color spectrums can be impactful. Um, so sometimes if there's too many pieces of, uh, or, or too many colors that contrast in a, in a way that, that is sensory overloading, sometimes even just that is a lot in a space. And as we know, queer communities, we love our color <laughs> and we love it bright and we love it kind of all over the place as, uh, for those who, uh, can't see, I, I'm currently even wearing purple, pink, and blue glasses, uh, for example. Um, so it, it really can um, depend. And sometimes some of these accessibility pieces may 
conflict when it comes to um, you know some of the needs um, of what our communities talk about. So our communities really do want things bright. They want things out there. We want we want all of that. But are we recognizing that? people who have visual impairments might be not be able to recognize the color contrasts. Are we recognizing that just having a rainbow doesn't necessarily fit for everybody and not everybody is going to be able to access that and know that it's a welcoming space. We need to put other things in place. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that there are so many um, small pieces like washrooms that people can talk about where the only gender neutral washroom winds up not being accessible um, or it, the accessibility of it is um, limited because um, quite often this is one of my main issues with working in spaces is that you'll ask if something is accessible but people yeah. don't really know what that means in practice so I always have checklists that I go back to um, I, I believe strongly in, in checklists when it comes to accessibility because we're not going to be able to, to get everything. Um, but one um, example that I haven't mentioned that, that I think is important is around um, employers with their employee assistance plans. And quite often we talk about the need for mental health and, and recognizing people's mental health and, and wellness and all of these things. But then we don't have providers who are inclusive mm. to us LGBTQI plus communities. And if those providers are inclusive, are they also, do they also have experience working with people with different types of disability? Um, or do they, are they stuck at this, you have 30 minutes and that's all with somebody who needs to frankly speak for an hour for that same amount of 30 minutes, mm -hmm. you know, it, it really can vary in terms of what each person's accessibility needs are. Um, and so I think we need to have checklists. We need to um, make sure that we are asking our providers, are you um, inclusive of 2S LGBTQI plus communities? Do we have providers available um, uh, when it comes to employee assistance plans, ASL, closed captioning, um, uh, all of these pieces. Um, and I think I, I'm rambling a little bit, but um, <laughs> I could get more specific if you if you would like. Well, and those are some things that people don't necessarily think about when they're outside that community. So, uh, you know, for example, me being more in the disability community, although I am a, a, a lesbian, I still um, don't necessarily see the queer trans perspective as much as I see the, the disability and accessibility perspective, having a, a mm -hmm. disability as well, I guess. And that's interesting and maybe something I need, obviously something I need to work on. So, uh, so I love that, you know, the intersectionality on, on that end and sharing that kind of information, because I think that it's people, so many of us don't know what we don't know. And then when we learn, then it really opens our eyes. And so when I first started getting into accessibility, I was always amazed, and I still am, but I, I'm less vocal about it, at how inaccessible buildings were. 
Uh, and so I would share that with my family, for example. And so now my family are all accessibility. I don't want to say experts, of course, because it's always changing, but, uh, but they certainly know how to identify when there's areas of concern from an accessibility perspective. Uh, so I, I just love that you've shared that because it's really got me thinking a lot more about that whole aspect. Changing the topic slightly, uh, when Colin and I met uh, last time, he mentioned too that Pride at Work had been doing some work in the area of the intersectionality between the LGBTQ2 plus group, as well as neurodiversity. And so I'm really interested to learn about that and what you've learned and, and where that even came from. Like, it's just such a cool um topic i just want to just tell me everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there neurodiversity for those who aren't um aware is an overarching term for um folks who uh think in a, a slightly different way whether that's uh uh being autistic um having adhd ocd um dyslexia dyspraxia and a number of other uh, different identities or conditions. I say identities or conditions because depending on which um, people define them differently. Um, and it really is a way of seeing how our brains and how we understand the world, how we understand life can be different for each of us. And so, for instance, as an autistic person, I don't pick up on certain social cues or um, some of the um, unwritten social language that that uh, people have. Um, and uh, as a result, people don't necessarily, there can be miscommunication between me and, and neurotypical people, um, <clears throat> which can happen here and there. The reason why there's such a connection, though, with 2SLGBTQI plus communities is because there's a huge overlap. Um, we don't fully know the reasonings why, though there are multiple um, um, explanations, but um, 2SLGBTQI plus communities are more likely to be neurodiverse and vice versa. And so we don't know whether that comes from the neurodiversity bringing in a sense of um, let's engage with the world in a different way. We understand the world in a different way. And then that translates to our sexual orientation or gender identity. We don't know if there's direct, uh, direct uh, linkage of some sort, um, but we do know that there's a huge overlap. And so within um, uh, neurodiverse communities, for instance, um, a lot of people are queer or trans. Um, and in Canada, uh, the Trans Pulse Canada, Canada research showcased that out of trans people in Canada, 30% were neurodiverse. And so wow. if you compare that to the general population where it ranges anywhere between 5% to, or 1% to 5%, um, usually in most studies. I've seen some that have gone as high as saying about 10% are neurodiverse, but I don't know the validity of that. Um, that showcases kind of this broad uh, difference. And so... Um, when we're building spaces for queer and trans folks, if we're not considering neurodiverse folks, we're leaving out a huge portion of the community. Um, so 
If I can just quickly ask uh, with regards to that 30% stat, is that also self-reported, self-identified? It is. And so there's, it, it, would it be safe to say that there are even more folks and just folks that don't really, because for example, uh, my daughter has been diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. And so for so long, she, you know, we didn't realize that that was the reasoning behind certain behaviors, certain attitudes and, and lots of fun. And so um, <laughs> we, we, you know, and so I'm wondering, there must be a number of people within that uh, 30% or over and above that, that don't even recognize themselves as being neurodiverse. Would Definitely. that be safe to say? I, I think that is safe to say. And, um, you know, for myself, I mean, I'm, I'm a good example of that. I knew I was trans by my like early teenage years. Um, I knew I was queer by my early teenage years, but I didn't. And I knew, I knew something was a bit different with me. I knew that I knew that, but I didn't get diagnosed as autistic till I was 35. Um, and so I've lived the vast majority of my life without knowing that. And that's actually fairly common among um, people who are uh, women or who are, are femme identified, um, that their age of diagnosis for a neurodiversity is more likely to be in their um, 30s and early 40s. Um, uh, because of the fact that the system has been set up and completely designed on cisgender, straight, white men. Um, boys, actually, I should yeah. should actually clarify. No, boys. Um, and so most of the uh, research out there has focused on that community and that way that neurodiversity shows up um, instead of looking at the complexities within our communities. And so that's why within um, queer and trans communities, especially for women, um, for non-binary folks, we're much less likely to have been diagnosed early on um, and to have that type of, uh, have any type of support through our, our growing years. So with that diagnosis at age 35, what differences has that made in your life or has it made differences? It, it has. It means I understand myself in a way that I never have. Um, and that understanding is changing the way that I work. It's changing okay. what I need in my work. It's explaining to me why I'm like not okay at times, why I am okay at other times. Um, and uh, I, I, it really has been a, um, almost an unlearning process um, while also learning new things. So it's, it's been a radical change for me. I, I, I cannot, uh, I don't think diagnosis is for everyone. And I think self-diagnosis hmm. is valid too. Um, uh, I think just like uh, at one point being queer was a diagnosis. <laughs> um, not that long ago, being trans was a diagnosis. Um, in fact, when I came out, it, I had to be diagnosed as having gender identity disorder that hmm. the the my transness was considered a disorder in and of itself. And so I think one day um, certain neurodiversities may be classified in a similar way um, where we are not 
determined as having a disorder, but what uh, we do have is a disabling by society and a disabling by not having supports um, uh, instead of our identity as, as it in and of itself being the issue. So uh, another example of where current systems are creating the barriers, uh, creating almost the disability. I mean, it happens in the physical disability, um, you know, mobility disability issues. Why can't, why do we have to have stairs? You know, those kinds of comments, but this yeah. is also, we're also creating that disability in the way we don't include neurodiverse folks in our teaching and uh, you know, everything really. So, so that's a very interesting uh, comment because it, it means there's hope for us yet, <laughs> because if we've done this already in other areas, ideally we can, we can do it again. And I, I when, see the progress happening. I really do. Um, you know, I, I think that we, we are able to, to make these changes over time and, and that, you know, we are still fairly early days when it comes to understanding neurodiversity um, as a society. And, and um, there, you know, the first person to be diagnosed as autistic just recently passed. Mm. Um, he was in his 80s. So it, it's, uh, you know, it's something that's still very new um, for not new to hum human experience, but new to human diagnosis. And so we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. I'm interested in the, the, the idea of sort of self-diagnosis for this, um, well, for neurodiversity or any type of disability, um, because it's, it's something I've heard more and more of uh, pros and cons. I hear mm -hmm. people for it. I hear people against it. I know in my own experience, I, I think that it's really important for people to be able to self-disclose um, and self-determine. But I also see people in my world who say, oh, that's my OCD. And it's just simply because, you know, <laughs> something wasn't lined up the way, you know, or, or, or something is lined up, you know, they put the same thing in back where it belongs every time. And so they, they relate that to having OCD or, uh, you know, that's my ADHD or, or one that, you know, being someone who lives with PTSD, I hear that, uh, you know, bandied about often as well, like all that, you know, I've got PTSD from that drive home. And, you know, so, I mean, I understand that there are obviously drive homes can be pretty horrific sometimes, but I'm just interested in your thought process in, in sort of how do we, oh, I hate to use the word allow, but, you know, how, how do we include folks that are, are self-identifying uh, without any type of official diagnosis if it's maybe coming from that place? And, and do we even care, I suppose? Well, I would say that when it's coming from that place, it's not actually self-diagnosis. It's coming from, frankly, societal prejudices of what these um, identities and conditions are instead of um, an actual understanding of these identities and conditions. And so, you know, I see true self-diagnosis as a long process that takes time that people have to come to an understanding for themselves. Um, it usually requires one's own um, personal research. It requires um, engagement with other people um, versus just flippantly using these terms to refer to an experience that really doesn't talk, uh, touch 
at all on that experience. I mean, you, you gave PTSD as an example, you know, as somebody who also lives with PTSD, there, the, the way that that's bandied about <laughs> by people is really dismissive of the actual lived reality of those of us who have those conditions and a, a lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. So I would say that it's um, more that we need to support people in understanding what who who we are in terms of our identities um, in practice and what does that look like in practice and in reality. Um, and then from there, we will have a better understanding in our world and people will feel more safe to self-diagnose. Because what I see is people who actually want to diagnose, uh, self-diagnose who have been really looking at themselves for years who have tried to find that space for themselves don't feel safe to that's what i see more often so the people who actually usually have uh um one of these conditions or or who have one of these identities um often don't feel safe to disclose because they don't feel like it's going to be taken seriously because other people do that Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I heard on uh, one of your podcasts, I don't know, I, I mean, it doesn't matter when I listen to it, because it makes no difference as to when you released it. But for me, it was just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and you were talking about um, the different um, sort of layers of privilege when it comes to I wish I could describe it a little more effectively, but, but the privilege is so relative based on who you are. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a white woman. Um, and so I have an extreme amount of privilege there. Um, and so that changes with the fact that I am, I am, have a disability. It changes with the fact that I'm in the LGBT community. Um, and so then, you know, but when we look at other people's level of privilege, you, you can also have, uh, someone who is a, a black woman and, and, has a, a higher layer of privilege perhaps over I don't know, a trans black woman. And so do you, I, I'm doing a poor job of explaining this and I apologize because your words are so much better than mine, but I was very, very interested in that entire concept and thinking about how, um, you know, the, the different layers of privilege based on, on your actual identity and, and that we all have a little bit of privilege or many of us have a little bit of privilege, even though we don't all have all the privilege that, of course, we know goes to, you know, that category of middle-aged white cisgender men. Like, <laughs> so can you sort of share a little bit about that? I stumbled through it and I apologize, but I just loved the concept. Yeah, I mean, it it goes back to the core ideas of intersectionality by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, But I went through some training with uh, Chanel Gallant um, back uh, a number of years ago, um, who's a sex worker rights activist, as well as um, just a powerhouse, in my opinion. Um, And she talked about it from the perspective of always needing to reframe and think about the possibility of, as somebody who has marginalizations, how does that impact people who have the same marginalizations as you, but don't have the same privileges? Mm. And in this context, she was talking about race. Um, And so that's often the context that I go to, especially as a white settler. I think about the fact that as a white settler, I bring a huge amount of privilege 
even if I am uh, neurodiverse and uh, disabled and a queer and trans and non-binary and, you know, yeah. grew up poor. Um, and, you know, despite those levels, I still have a significant amount of privilege in comparison to most trans femmes of color. And so I have to be very aware of that and be very present of that in my work and say, in my work, how am I uplifting trans folks of color in my life, um, who, especially trans femmes of color? Because um, if mm. I'm not doing that, then I'm probably not serving the community as a whole, and I'm probably missing something. Um, because I think those of us who are from equity-deserving groups we can get very, I don't want to say stuck, but stuck on our own marginalizations yes. that we then forget our privileges. And we have to, if we're truly going to be building a you know, coalition of people who believe in inclusion, of people who believe in creation of belonging for all, if we truly believe that, then we have to look at ourselves first. And so that kind of leads me to winding up in, in this conversation, although I'd, I'd love to just carry on for quite a bit longer. Um, your work does reflect a lot of interest in self-discovery and understanding. And so for the folks that are listening and are, are you know, starting or partway through that, that path of self-discovery or, or working to understand others as you talk about the, the layers of, of privilege, what advice might you give to help them on the journey? Be gentle with yourself. Mm, I love it. Um, I, I think we we can be very hard on ourselves as to when we make mistakes, when we are trying to figure ourselves out, um, and the mistakes we can make with others when we're doing that. Um, and so, you know, be gentle with yourself, but also at the end of the day, we also need to be accountable. So if we make mistakes, we need to be accountable for those mistakes um, and recognize the harms that we may have made along the way. Um, and uh, But I think also when we're trying to figure ourselves out, um, the person that we can be hardest on sometimes is ourselves. And so that being gentle with ourselves is part of that process and that we don't figure ourselves out in one day. We don't figure out how to be inclusive in one day. This is something that takes a lifetime. And so it, each day we just take a tiny little step forward. And, you know, some days we take a tiny little step back. But as long as most days we're taking that tiny little step forward, that's the important piece. Um, and I say this as somebody who is generally hard on themselves. <laughs> um, uh, but it's it's very real in terms of, you know, needing to create that space. We create space for others when we create space for ourselves. Oh, I love that. You know, it, it took us a long time to get to where we are now. So it's not going to be changing necessarily overnight. But the more we focus on the change. And, and for me, when people ask me this same type of question in the area of, of understanding and working with people with disabilities, I will often say, don't, don't be afraid to ask a question. You know, don't be afraid to admit you don't know. Sometimes I think we're so busy trying to pretend we know it all that we just shy away from the stuff we don't know. And in other words, we, you know, we stay less informed that way. 
Whereas if we just were like, okay, I don't know what I'm talking about. Somebody please help me. Did I say this properly? Or I don't understand that. So for me, that's, that's another bit of advice that I will offer to people in the area of accessibility. If you had a, a genie and you had three wishes, but you were on your third, <laughs> what would you wish for in, in the area of inclusion and accessibility uh, in, in our country, what would what would be the thing that you would love to see happen above all other things? Uh, universal basic income. Oh <laughs> if, I, if I'm truly honest, that's one yeah. of the biggest things because uh, those of us who are left behind, we are left behind. And, and um, there is no amount of corporate inclusion work that is going to fully fix that um, if we don't look at our society as a whole. So that's something that I truly believe very strongly on is a universal basic income for all people and allowing us to be able to have that economic flexibility to also create spaces for each other. And, you know, marginalized people, we're creative, we, we make those spaces. We know how to make those spaces. We just need the opportunity to. And right now, a small group of people have that opportunity for the rest of us, but everybody needs that opportunity. We need our, our basic safety and security and, and needs, those basic needs taken care of. I, I'm always saying this to folks that are, are like, well, how do we, you know, how do we afford all of that? And I think, how do we afford not to do something like that, where we're supporting people and, and getting everyone up to a much more level playing field until, until we fix our, our, you know, the health and mental health of, of our society. And my feeling, we're just carrying on down this same path, creating more trauma, which creates more of, you know, all the mental health disability and all the other thing that comes along with that. So Sorry, I'm on my soapbox. I'll just get down for a second. <laughs> it is something I could rant about for ages. Thank you, Jade, so much for being here. Uh, I've learned so much more, and uh, I just love chatting with you all the time. So we need to really make some time for ourselves, maybe not on camera one of these times, to really chat and catch up. Um, so, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time for being here today. Happy to. Thank you. And for those of you that are watching or listening, thanks again for joining us today. And for more information about supplier diversity and inclusion, you can visit us on our website at iwscc.ca. Find us on YouTube. Listen in on your favorite podcast platform. Um, once again, thank you to Jade for joining us from Pride at Work Canada. Please go to their website, uh, look up their podcasts, which are absolutely fantastic to listen to. Thank you again to Pod Supply and Maple Communications, as well as RBC for uh, covering the cost for us for 2023 for all of our ASL interpretations, which is really big. We'll see you next time.